0: Good morning, My name is Mark. The Old Testament reading will be found in First Samuel chapter two verses seven through nine. "The Lord, He makes poor, He gives wealth, He brings low, but also lifts on high. God raises the poor from the dust, lifts up the needy from the garbage pile. God sits them with officials, gives them the seat of honor. The pillars of the earth belong to the Lord. He set the world on top of them. God guards the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked die in darkness because no one succeeds by strength alone. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives us more grace. This is why it says, God stands against the proud but favors the humble therefore submit to god resist the devil and he will run away from you come near to god and he will come near to you wash your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double-minded cry out in sorrow mourn and weep let your laughter come to become mourning and your joy become sadness humble yourselves before the lord and he will lift you up. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke chapter 1, verses 51 through 52. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones. And lifted up the lowly, the gospel of the Lord.
1: Amen. You may be seated. We're going to pray in just a moment. I know you're very used to praying right then and there after the gospel reading. Good morning, everybody, and everyone watching online. Throw up some hearts or thumbs or likes or comments or whatever. Hello. Let's let's say hello, everybody. Come on, give them a little cheer. I'm so grateful that you're joining us each week online. I know it's. Less than desirable, but we want to make it possible for you to do that. Thank you, everyone who's here in the room. Are you enjoying the Sunday morning routine? Are you enjoying getting back to this at 9 and 11? It's a wonderful thing. Hey, I want to just speak to you for a moment about what's coming up in, the, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've decided as New Life Church to do our Christmas Eve services online only. And I know we agonized over this one. It's so, uh, it's such a, a sad thing. But here's our, our thinking behind it. Uh, our Christmas Eve services tend to be uh, much, much larger than normal attendance. And some of you even can think of Christmas Eves in uh, recent years where you've come in and not been able to get seats in the room and that sort of thing. And so we, we, we didn't want to do that because as. Uh, a courtesy to our our wonderful people there I talked with someone today who is serving in hospital management he says look for all continue to pray for the nurses and doctors that are caring for people, that nobody wants to see um, people take a turn for the worse. And having to go through that has been very, very wearying on on uh, the hospital staff. So we want to help give our community a bit a bit of a breather. So, we're, And the other thing about Christmas Eve, not only is it larger than normal attendance, but it's also a lot of out-of-town folks. So we're super grateful that in all of our months of meeting in person, uh, New Life Church worship services have not been spreader events. They've not, not been the cause of outbreaks. Glory to God for that. Thanks be to God for that. And we want to keep it that way. So Christmas Eve will be online only. Now, here's the deal. All of you, New Life downtowners, next Sunday, December 20th, we will have candles and candlelight, carol singing, and all of that in here on a Sunday morning. And there was much rejoicing in the land. I know the rejoicing, I don't know. You're, 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 you're not quite there. Um, but. But the, the, the reason for that is where it's a normal Sunday morning, we'll be here, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., we'll have carols, I'll, I'll bring a wrap-up to this Advent series, and we'll end the service with a candles and silent night. So you don't want to miss next Sunday, December 20th. Those of you at home, this is your warning, go order some candles on Amazon and have them ready for you next Sunday, okay? And there's a slight chance that we'll, there's a chance that we might even pull to online only for a couple of Sundays, uh, it won't be long, even if, if we do it, it'll be one or two Sundays, uh, it won't be long, but I wanted to give you a heads up with that. Look, there's, there are so many different ways to argue and to uh, even imagine, rightfully, I, I found myself waffling on all sides of the decisions, uh, different decisions that we've made. So just understand, uh, however you're feeling, we get it, we feel it too. Uh, and give us a little bit of, of flexibility here in terms of whatever way we end up landing over the next several weeks. Does that sound Okay. Yes and Amen. Glory to God. It's joy Sunday. Let's pray. This now you can see why I waited to pray. Okay. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to us. We ask today that you would do that. That even as we listen to the scriptures being taught and being read, you let the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable and pleasing to you. Be glorified, we pray, this morning, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. If you were to do a Google search on the most revolutionary inventions in human history, number one would be the wheel. Uh, That comes up uh, right away. But quickly the list goes on, and, and according to several different websites, the printing press shows up next, and then the telephone, and then the car, the automobile, and yes, believe it or not, in different Uh, eras of human history vaccines uh, have made the list of most revolutionary inventions of course had the list been updated maybe we would have talked about the internet and more things uh, that have followed it since maybe the smartphone maybe zoom we're not so sure if we're grateful for that or not technologies the ones that are the most revolutionary are actually the ones that are most disruptive. The ones that disrupt hegemonies or clusters of power and sort of unsettle the structures of the way industries once worked. I mean, think about maybe in not so distant um, history here, think about the beginning, the very first iTunes store. Come on, somebody. Anybody remember burning your disks and uploading them into your iTunes library. Surely you're old enough to remember this. And then what quickly followed the iTunes library was the iPod, a most revolutionary device. How many of you had the first generation iPod? Okay, a couple of you. I waited, I think, but I had the red and black special edition U2 iPod. Uh Aha, I wish I could find that thing. It's probably worth a lot right now. And I was reading this year uh, the biography of Steve Jobs that came out several years ago, and they were talking about how Sony blew it because Sony had a music division where they had a record label and artists, and they had devices. I mean, these are the people who brought us such things as the Walkman. Anybody in the room? Walkman? And followed by the Discman. Yeah? Followed by the Mini Disc player. Anyone did that? I had that. For a little while, I was going strong. I'm like, Mini Discs are the future it did not pan out and and Sony kind of blew it because they had arguments between their music division and their technology device division and they couldn't figure out how to pay one another and make it work meanwhile Apple comes in they create the iTunes Store they make distribution deals and they agree on pricing arrangements but it was incredibly disruptive and I remember in some of the years, I was involved in, in, a, in a worship band, and we were making records and all that sort of stuff, and, and during some of those years of those changes, and it began to change. All of a sudden, record labels would have cash, and they would pay artists to make albums up front. Now it was like, well, if you want to make your own album, maybe we'll distribute it for you. And the whole industry began to change because there was less cash flowing, and users were like, eh, hey, 99 cents a song, and we, could, we, we don't have to buy a whole album just for two good songs. So in one sense, the listener wins, right? You're like, yeah, no kidding. I was so tired of buying those albums. I really only wanted that one song. On one hand, the listeners win. On the other hand, the record labels lost. But then things adjust, and there's a great leveling. And so now people say, well, if there's also digital distribution, there's digital creation of music. And everyone on their laptop or their smartphone has a garage band app, and we'll just record and upload. This is why Taylor Swift can re- release albums every, I don't know, every year, every six months, every whatever. You guys are a little tough this morning at 11 a.m. I gotta say, the 9 a.m. was rolling at this point in the sermon. Got some catching up to do. Anyway, okay. Uh, <laughs> so when, when disruptions happen, on the one hand, it's a good thing. On the other hand, it, it leaves us with a little bit of chaos. It leaves us sort of trying to figure out which is it. How, where is my music? Is it on a few CDs? Is it in my iTunes library? Is it on Spotify? I know some of you in the room are like, "What's he talking about?" Like, I just go to Spotify or YouTube, and I, does anyone do Pandora anymore? I don't, I don't think so. So there's disruption, which is on the one hand a great leveling, but on the other hand introduces new kinds of chaos. Think about this with journalism. It used to be the daily newspaper, then it was the evening news, then it was 24-hour news networks, and then it's social media and the quote-unquote news, And so you sort of have every man or every person sort of journalism where I'm right here at the scene of the event only to discover a few years into this. And I remember following uh, the the, the Boston bombing that happened at the marathon several years ago and following it on Twitter and reading like minute by minute, oh my goodness, here's the manhunt and here's what's happening. It was like breaking news from the street. It was incredible. But now we're a few years removed from that. People might take a picture of an event and create a storyline and it might start trending on Twitter only to be a totally false narrative and you might see an image and you're like oh, I know exactly what's going on behind that image only to find out that's not actually what happened and so now we've got this disruption of journalism that on the one hand it's like well it's good every person can kind of figure out the truth on the other hand it's led to this distrust and a little bit of chaos this is what revolutions do they create a kind of leveling but they also create a certain kind of chaos, a new kind of chaos. We're in the series here on Mary's song, and we've called this series A Revolutionary Advent, a series on the Magnificat. And this is a series on Mary's song, and we're meant to kind of recognize that Jesus's arrival was not a cute little event that happened in the little corner of an empire so that a few Followers of Jesus could take on a new kind of inward piety and say, oh, I've got my own new sort of little prayer ritual and my own little way to acknowledge him as my personal Lord and Savior. No, the gospel writers won't have any of that. They want us to know that Jesus' arrival is a public truth. It's news that is meant to set empires on notice and to unsettle kings on their thrones. It's meant to be breaking news for the whole world. This is what Pastor Brian was reading to us out of Luke's gospel this morning. It's the best, the most joyful news we've ever heard, and shepherds hear it, and so there's this, there's this back and forth of like, it kind of seems like nobody caught it, at the same time, we're meant to pay attention. It's revolutionary. And in the first week, we talked about how the revolution is personal, that this God's, the Son of God's arrival is intensely personal for each of us, and then in week two, last week we talked about how the revolution is universal. It's a mercy that is for everyone that is stretching us to draw bigger circles than the circles we want to draw. And today we're going to look at how the revolution is itself a reversal. It is a reversal. That what Mary starts to sing about is a restructuring and a reordering and upending of things as they once were. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer in an Advent sermon in 1933, he said, the Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. Bonhoeffer says, it is at once the most passionate, the wildest, and one might even say, the most revolutionary Advent, Advent hymn ever sung. This is why I have sort of tongue-in-cheek joked that the Magnificat is less of a choral piece, even though I love choirs singing the Magnificat. I've joked that it's less of a choral piece and more of a punk rock anthem of a generation. It's maybe a bit like Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changing, or a few decades later, like Twisted Sisters, I'm not going to take it, we're not going to take it. Maybe it's Mary's way of saying, God's not going to take it. There you are. Luke 1, 51 to 53, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He's pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. Think about all these statements that are being made in the song. He scatters the proud. He pulls down the powerful. He lifts up the lowly. He fills up the hungry. And he sends the rich away empty. We're going to make three observations from the text this morning. And the first is this. Advent is about a reordering of power. Advent is about a reordering of power. You see right away in these lines that Mary is drawing on language from Hannah's song. We heard it in our Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel. Where Hannah is singing about the Messiah. This is where, by the way, the whole notion of an anointed one, a messiah, begins to arise in Israel. Is from Hannah singing, God, you're going to do this and you're going to do it through the horn of your anointed one. The strength of your anointed one. And here's Mary saying, I think that is this. I think the another David or the true son of David is coming and it's going to reorder power. God is disrupting the prideful and the powerful and establishing the downcast and the desperate. God is disrupting the prideful and the powerful and establishing the downcast and the desperate. Now it's interesting because when he says these things, he has some strong things to say. The song itself Jesus echoes the song itself in Luke 6, verse 20 to 21. Jesus, in his sermon, we've read this a couple weeks in a row now. Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples and said, happy are you who are poor because God's kingdom is yours. Happy are you who hunger now because you will be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now because you will laugh. And a few verses later, verse 24, but how terrible for you who are rich. Because you've already received your comfort, how terrible for you who have plenty now, because you will be hungry! How terrible for you who laugh now, because you will mourn and weep! How terrible for you and all speak well of you, their ancestors did the same things with the false prophets. Now, when you hear these words, you're like, "Wow! What does Jesus have against laughter?" And feasting and money, is is Jesus against me? I need to qualify this for you. Oftentimes when the scriptures speak about the rich, it's a shorthand way. Oftentimes it's a shorthand way for describing people who have gained wealth at someone else's expense. Oftentimes it's a shorthand way of saying the rich are the ones who have gained their wealth through exploitation and oppression. He's not talking about it being wrong in and of itself to increase or to do well or for your businesses to do well or to put away a 401k. That's not what he has in mind. What he has in mind is the kind of richness that is gained through someone else's loss. But it's also a warning at the way riches finds a way of taking root in our hearts. I know because we've been playing Monopoly as a family. (laughs) My kids are starting to beat us as the parents and they're a little too happy about it. The other day we were playing and it was like fights were breaking out, and They're like, that'll be $900 for my hotel. And everyone's like, oh gosh, you don't have to be so mean about it. And one of my kids said, like, dad, it really is true. Money has a way of turning you into a bad person. (laughs) And this is fake money we're talking about. The Bible's warning is about how wealth is gained and how wealth has a grip on us. That's what it's focused on. How is it gained and how's its grip on you? Has it got you? And so when Jesus says there's going to be a reversal and a disruption about wealth, this is not some sort of communist dream. This is Jesus saying, don't let wealth lead you to oppress others and don't let wealth become the master of your life. If you do, you'll find out there's a, bad, there's, there's a bad ending to that story. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says this in his sermon in Luke 6. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, picks this up in his letter. James 4, second half of verse 6 and then verse 10. This is why it says God stands against the proud but favors the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. As an aside, it's really fascinating to think about how the themes of Mary's song show up in the life and ministry of her boys. In Jesus' sermon and in James' letter, they're like, you just wonder if in the back of their mind, they're like, mom used to sing this, that God is all about reordering power. And so Jesus preaches it. James exhorts it. Advent is about a reordering of power. But if we're honest, That's not what we see in the world around us. And maybe if we could allow the voice of the questioning part of us, just turn up the dial on it, just one click, and you'd say, yeah, yeah, what is is this about? I mean, hang on now. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. If this is about a reordering of power, why is nothing different? Why do the wicked prosper, like the psalmist said? Why does it seem to go well for people who are exploiting? There's no reversal. Don't forget that in Mary's own lifetime, she watched her son be beaten and crucified. Mary was not singing this song and la-di-da, the rest of life was a tiptoe through the tulips. Oh, Jesus has come. is it life grand? Have another cuppa. Mary's grieving Pierced, one of the godly saints in the temple says a sword will pierce your own soul. And Mary, at the foot of the cross, watching this Messiah be killed, what reversal? The question for us is, what do we do when we see a delay in God's actions? What do we do when we sense and experience a delay in what we perceive What we expect of God's justice. What happens when there's a delay in justice? What happens when there's a delay in the reversal? There's not a reversal. It seems to be an entrenchment. The wrong people with power. Why is this happening? What do we do in those moments? It's tempting for some Christians to, to turn Mary into some sort of Marxist here. That her song is power to the people and down with the man. And to kind of hear the words of the Magnificat in this 21st century cultural climate of a post-Marxist critique and we say, well, all power is bad and nobody should be in charge and I don't, there should be no CEOs and nobody in lead, leadership and everybody needs to be down. And to conclude from this that power itself is the problem, this is not what we are meant to take away from the Gospels. The Gospels and the New Testament itself is unequivocally clear. Power is not the problem when it's in God's hands. The question is not power. It's in whose hands do we entrust this power? And this is why we had our whole series in the book of Revelation when we understand that the one who roars like a lion looks like a lamb. Only the one who was slain has the authority to rule. Only the one who died has the authority to execute justice. Only the one who was crucified has the authority to sit on the throne of judgment. Only the one who was on the cross has the right to sit on the throne. And when we come to grips with this, we we recognize that Mary doesn't get up from this moment and singing this Magnifica and lead a a, a violent protest where she's burning stuff and smashing windows and lighting shops on fire. Mary's not trying to bring about the reversal in herself, in and of herself. Mary understands that Advent requires hope. Advent requires hope. We find ourselves in these in this in between. We know that Jesus came to bring about a reversal and we know that one day he will do it in fullness. And so here we are in the middle living with hope. Trying to live in the midst of that. John ends his gospel by describing Jesus on the cross saying it is finished. It is complete. And then he ends his final vision, the book of Revelation with it is done the two greek words they're completion and coming to pass we live between that it's complete and yet it has not come to pass friends i want to say this to us we see things that are out of order and out of kilter in the world around us and we don't want to slide into passivity on the one hand passivity is one error in this but the other error is a sort of error is a sort of self-righteous activism A self-righteous activism where we imagine that we know what's up and we can fix what's wrong and this is why we need to do this and this is why we need to do that and down with them and defund this and this is how we take care of things. If you listen to the dialogue in the society around us, it's very difficult for people to start critiquing power without themselves sounding self-righteous. But there is no one worthy. There is no human who can execute justice perfectly there is only one who is righteous enough to reorder the world there is only one who is righteous enough to reorder the world and his name is Jesus amen amen and this is why we say in advent come thou long expected Jesus Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, because we're saying, I know why you came the first time, but I know we're not quite there. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Only you can set this right. Advent requires hope. We don't get out of it. We don't turn our vision of God's justice into programmatic, self-righteous activism. We don't do that. There has always ever only been one Messiah, and only Jesus can set this right. What do we do as we wait? If we were taking our cues from Mary, we'd say, we sing. We sing. We worship. We remind ourselves of this. See, today is the third Sunday of Advent. It's the Sunday of joy. But joy is impossible without hope. Joy is impossible without hope. Until you remember your hope, you will not experience the joy. Until you remember the hope of Jesus Christ, you will not experience the joy. Joy is impossible without hope. And so here we are on this third Sunday of Advent needing to say, okay, God, bring your hope again into my heart so that I can have joy. And all of this singing and the hopeful song makes me think of the spirituals that came from African-American slaves and this country's history. When I was doing my doctoral research, I was studying how contemporary worship songs communicate hope or how they don't, and how it's experienced in worship services. And one of the tiny parts of the the study was recognizing that so many of our contemporary modern songs that we say are songs of hope end up being about the present tense, The songs that we say, and that's one thing if it's just a general list of songs, but the songs that worship leaders said, no, no, these are songs of hope, why are so many of them actually about the present tense? And I began to stumble upon an uncomfortable reflection, maybe it's because so many of us live in a pretty comfortable present. And so we don't need to sing about the future because "Mm, life's pretty good right now. Let's just sing about Jesus and me here and now. And this is such a sharp contrast to the slave spirituals. James Cone wrote this about the spirituals. He said the spiritual is the spirit of the person struggling to be free. It is their religion, their source of strength in a time of trouble. And then he says, if one doesn't know... If one doesn't know what trouble is, then the spiritual cannot be understood. Amen. Amen. If you don't know what trouble is, nobody knows. The trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. You won't understand the power of a spiritual until you understand the trouble. And I imagine Mary singing her song more than once. I imagine Mary watching. Roman oppression and singing He will bring the mighty down from their thrones He will lift up the lowly and the weak Maybe Joseph comes home with another story I saw a centurion beating a Jewish tradesman today I got out of there this time, he says And Mary keeps quiet She says, he will pull down the mighty from their thrones one day he will lift up the lowly and the weak. and The song begins to bring them hope. Just like the spiritual slaves out in the cotton fields. Scars on their backs singing, Soon and very soon. Singing, Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming by to carry me home. Singing, One day we will lay down that heavy load. You think of these lyrics they don't mean much when we're living in the burbs, but they mean a lot when you're facing trouble. Several scholars have begun to suggest that in the time of the New Testament, there was a genre of art called Jewish resistance poetry. I kind of like that. Sounds like something out of Star Wars. Join the resistance, <laughs> sing the song. Art that helped you resist the empire. It's very possible that Mary knew exactly what she was doing and that the Magnificat was an instance of Jewish resistance poetry. Advent requires hope and hope requires a song. Cohn goes on about the spirituals and he says, the spirituals speak not only of what Jesus has done and is doing for blacks in slavery, but he says Jesus was understood as holding the keys of judgment and therefore the full consummation of God's salvation will take place, say this word with me, take place outside of the historical sphere. In other words, yes, it's good news while we're going through it, but I'll tell you what, the good news is even better than that. Once this time and space story is over, Jesus is the son of God, Cone says, who dwells in heaven and he's coming again, but this time he ain't coming to die. He is coming to complete God's will to set free the poor, the black, and the wasted. If you find yourself in a season, in a moment right now where you're facing trouble and you're saying, God, I don't see a reversal. In fact, I see more suffering for me. And what did I do to deserve that? I'm just a business owner trying to make ends meet. I'm just a single parent trying to figure out how to do this thing. I didn't ask to be put in this spot. Where is this reversal, God? I'm here to remind you this morning that heaven requires hope. And hope requires a song. Let Mary be your song leader. Let Mary remind you to keep on singing, he will pull down the mighty from their thrones. He will lift up the poor and the needy. He will do it. He will do it. And for all of us right now, the invitation is to humble ourselves before the Lord. The third and final observation from this text is that Advent is a time to humble ourselves. Advent is a time to humble ourselves. We've already seen God's disposition toward us. God is determined to have mercy on you. Maybe for some of you, that's a new picture of God. Maybe you sort of thought, God is determined to judge me, and I have to beg him for mercy the other way around. With the arrival of Jesus, we understand that God is determined to be merciful toward you. And really, the the sad irony of it is we are often refusing the very thing that could rescue us. And this is what we talked about last week. The mercy of God that's for everyone if we will receive it as such. The reversal this morning, the reversal that God wants to bring comes when we stop resisting Him. The reversal that God wants to bring in your life comes when we stop resisting Him. It comes when we begin to say okay Lord have your way okay Lord I I let go remember that before Mary started singing she said to the angel be it unto me according to your word or in that phrase made famous by the Beatles let it be when I find myself in times of trouble mother Mary comes to me Singing words of wisdom, let it be, right? They kind of sang it, the Beatles kind of sang it as, eh, shrug your shoulders. If we understand what Mary was doing, it was a prayer of repentance, or surrender at least. To say, let it be. For us, it can be repentance and surrender. It can be the very humbling of ourselves. that says, okay, God, I see now what you're up to in the world. I see that you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. I see now that you're not for people who are prideful and powerful and rejoice and trust in their own strength. So whether you have plenty or whether you have little, all of us can humble ourselves before the Lord. All of us. Whether you're in the burbs or whether you're living the dream or whether you're not, whether this Christmas feels like a Hallmark movie or it feels like a page out of the, from the very... <laughs> depths of hell we can humble ourselves before the lord and say god let it be let this reversal come to me let the reordering begin in my heart and in my own life you bow your heads this morning